The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you to take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me in the, gospel, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. If you're using the Bible that's provided in the pew, I think it's page 854. Then <clears throat> as you're turning there, let me again um, say what a privilege it is to be with you on the Lord's Day, on such a particularly beautiful Lord's Day, to worship with you, to sing of the immeasurable greatness of our God and His friendship with sinners. And now to come to the Word of God and to see a glorious portrait of that depicted for us in Luke's carefully written history as we continue in our series on encountering Jesus and extending His grace. Luke chapter 7, we're going to begin reading in verse 36, and I'll read for us all the way down to verse 50. I invite you to give it your full attention because this is the very Word of God. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you join me in a word of prayer? 
Our Father in heaven, we do pray that your name would be hallowed as your word is opened up. We pray that your kingdom would come to each heart who hears this sermon. We pray, Lord, that if there is one who is yet not joined to Jesus through faith, that you would work that miracle of saving grace. And Lord, we pray for each one who hears that knows the Lord Jesus, that your kingdom would be more deeply embedded and further extended as you rule in our hearts through the disclosure of who Jesus is. Lord, we pray that you would feed us upon your word. We pray that you would grant us a deeper appreciation for the debts that you have forgiven. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us not only to want to love you in response, but to love our neighbors and proclaim the forgiveness of their debts as we extend forgiveness of those who are indebted to us. Now, Lord, as we come to your word, would you deliver us from evil and the evil one? Deliver us from distraction. We pray you deliver us from doubt. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from unbelief and disobedience to the Word of God. And we pray that you would do it all for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The history of art is peppered with some mysteries. For example, that great American classic, Whistler's Mother, actually has a story behind the story that you see on the canvas. Uh, There is actually some question about whether Whistler intended to paint his mother or whether there indeed was another subject intended it didn't arrive and his mother just sat and then that gray on gray became an American classic. Another portrait of another woman, famous woman, is called The the Woman in Gold. This story was popularized in a recent movie. The Woman in Gold was a portrait that was stolen by the Nazis in World War II. And then when it was discovered and resold at market, it was sold for $135 million. And the movie told the story behind the story on the canvas. Even that most famous portrait, Mona Lisa, is filled with mystery and story. Recently, the Louvre in uh, Paris commissioned Pascal Coté to do an intensive study through uh, techniques with light and intense light to see what was on the canvas, behind the canvas, because the suspicion is that there was more than one subject for the, the painting. And perhaps not even that subject was intended. Mystery upon mystery and these portraits, these great portraits of women. Well, in the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke gives us a far more ancient portrait of a woman that rather than concealing mystery, actually unveils mystery as it shows us our Lord Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished for sinners. And this morning, I would like us to get to the story behind the story by looking at the canvas and looking at Luke's brushstrokes, as it were, to see the specifics of what this portrait of this ever-famous woman, if you know the Bible, tells us about Jesus. And as we consider carefully this portrait that Luke has given to us, here's the lesson that we're to take away, the reality that we're to take into our lives, a genuine grasp of God's grace in Jesus will overflow in active, authentic love to Christ. 
and other sinners. A genuine grasp of God's grace to us in Jesus will overflow in active, authentic love to Christ and other sinners. Now, I'd like us to get at that message from that portrait by looking at three things revealed to us in the passage. First, we're going to see the love of the sinner, and then we'll see the lesson for Simon, and then wonderfully we will see the authority of the Savior. The love of the sinner, the lesson for Simon, the authority of the Savior. Look at verses 36 to 38. We see the love of the sinner. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Rhonda, my wife, and I were high school sweethearts. The night we went off, I went off to Bible college, we said a hard, long goodbye. The goodbye was full of weeping and sobbing and nose wiping and clinging, and Rhonda was kind of upset also. (laughs) I took so long to say goodbye that my dad, knowing how hard this was for us, walked around the corner from my house to Rhonda's house to bring me home. And as I slumped home, he met me on the path to my neighborhood, and he said to me, you better turn around and look behind you. And there was the little redhead, tears streaming down her face, hair flying, actually shoeless, running down the street after me. That was something like 36 years ago, and I still remember it as an uninhabited expression of authentic, active love. How this lady expressed her love to Jesus in Simon's house was an uninhibited, active, authentic, although in religious company, awkward expression of love. We're not given the lady's name. What we do know is that she was notorious for her sin. Her shame and disgrace was well enough known that they expected that if Jesus knew who she was and what she had done, He would never let Him touch her, far less give such an extravagant expression of affection. As generations have read this story, we've assumed that this was a lady of the streets, a prostitute, and that's possible, maybe even probable, but you notice that the exact nature of her sin is never actually spelled out. It just says she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. That word sinner could refer to a wide variety of ungodly people. Was she a socialite who had fallen into insurmountable debt? The word was used for that also. Was she a drunkard who lay about the streets? Was she known for a same-sex lifestyle? All of those habits and more existed in the biblical world. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, the description of the grace-bought members of the church in Corinth identifies them as former swindlers, drunkards, homosexuals, and idolaters, just to name a few of the grace-bought members of the church in Corinth. 
Was this woman one of those kinds of sinners? Her anonymity and the anonymity of her sin actually make the story more powerful and actually more practical for us because this could be any sin. This could be any of us. All we know was that she was a woman of the city who in the heart of many was defined by her sin. But somehow, somewhere, she had heard of Jesus. And she was determined she was going to get next to Jesus. It wouldn't have been irregular for uninvited guests to be at a dinner like this. Someone like Simon would have thrown a dinner in a large courtyard in his house. The invited guests would recline at the table. The others from the neighborhood would come and line the walls and come and go. These things were kind of like a block party. Jesus was reclining at the table and his left arm, so as his right arm was free to take food and drink, his head and shoulders were toward his host, and his feet were facing away from the table. That was the custom for table guests. But then this notorious sinner breaks with all of the comfortable customs and dissolves into an overflow of humble, broken, grateful love. My mind, as I read the story, goes to a woman in a church that I was privileged to pastor who went through the brutal brokenness of discovering the betrayal of her husband over many years. And as her life fell apart and my wife and I tried to do ministry to her, and she said to us on one occasion, I just can't envision coming back to church because I'll just fall to pieces. To which we counseled her, then just fall to pieces. Or my good friend and colleague at Westminster Seminary who is well known for his gift of hospitality and his house is often filled with saints and with sinners and children of his friends and colleagues from work and as they feed them and as as they, they host them and there's no Martha Stewart fine china lying around. It's just the stuff that the family uses and the grandkids are around and everybody participates and he calls it his glorious mess. This woman was a glorious mess. Her hair is undone, a sign of humility and brokenness. She's weeping uncontrollably enough that Jesus' feet actually get wet and she has to repeatedly wipe them with her hair. And if that wasn't socially unsettling enough, she's kissing His feet, displaying intense, utter devotion, adoration, and submission to Christ. Finally, she takes a little stone jar which has treasured ointment worth about a year's wages and she breaks it and pours it on the Savior's feet. This isn't what you expect in a Presbyterian small group meeting. A remarkable thing is this this woman actually never says anything in the episode. We don't know her name, we don't know her specific sin, and we don't know a word she said. Yet, for all of history, she is one of the treasures in God's portrait gallery of grace. As one commentator put it, her actions speak a thousand words. What she did, said, 
that she had tasted the depths of God's grace in Jesus. And she values that grace beyond her reputation, beyond her appearance, beyond the treasure she'd accumulated to that point, and that whatever they think of her, she will overflow in active, authentic love for Jesus. Actually, that's the point, says Jesus. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Notice how Jesus clinches the story. So she loved much. This lady gets it when it comes to being forgiven. May I ask you this question? When the story is written about your life, what will the overflow of your actions and affections for Jesus say about your grasp of Jesus? Sometimes being reserved is genuinely a personality thing and it's genuinely a cultural thing. It's not a bad thing. Sometimes that genuine personality or cultural thing can get used as a way of walling ourselves off, maintaining control of our heart, protecting ourselves from Jesus. Sometimes the genuine personality thing or cultural thing gets used as a cover for the other thing. And surely the question that this wonderfully messy portrait of amazing grace presses on us, no matter how we're wired, no matter how we were raised, does Jesus have the unfettered affections of our heart? Does Jesus have the affections of your heart or are those ruled by the socially acceptable expectations of the cultural crowd or the religious crowd or whoever thinks they own the table. Our willingness to act in expressions of love for Jesus can be an evidence of how genuinely we grasp the grace that we've been given by Jesus. But before Jesus taught this lesson to us through this lady, He taught it to the Pharisee at the end of the table. We've seen the love of the sinner. Would you now notice the lesson for Simon? Look with me, if you would, again at verse 39 to 47. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. Here's another thing that you have to love about Jesus. Where we tend to write off the legalists, Jesus doesn't. See, when in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees are the bad guys in the story. When they walk onto the scene, you're supposed to hear Darth Vader's theme or maybe now Thanos' theme. The kiddies are all cued, bad dude, bad guy. Jesus confronts the Pharisees, He critiques the Pharisees, He corrects the Pharisees, and in the end, the Pharisees are part of the lynch mob that will actually railroad Jesus to the cross. But notice what He does in verse 36. One of them comes and asks Him to go to dinner, and Jesus goes. Why? They're the enemy. They're the opposition. They hold a different position. They're blogging and tweeting against Him. 
Why go to dinner? Because Jesus' grace is so amazing that He is seeking to win not just the tax collectors and sinners, but He's seeking to win the self-righteous religious people as well. Are you familiar with the story of that late-night encounter Jesus has with the teacher of Israel named Nicodemus? By the end of the Gospel, when Jesus is being buried, Nicodemus is there believing, making sure Jesus gets buried right. Are you familiar with that? Pharisee of Pharisees, whose name was Saul, became Paul. And Jesus won him on the road as he was on his way to kill Christians. Sometimes what happens is when we get a hold of God's amazing grace for sinners, we give up on the legalists. Jesus doesn't. He pursues all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, and He doesn't avoid them because their particular sin is of the self-righteous variety. Here's the thing to notice about the story. You notice that in the story, Jesus is not actually after the heart of the notorious sinner. He's already got her heart. He's after the guy at the end of the table. That's why he goes after Simon's secret objection. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw him, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, and she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, Why didn't Jesus leave it alone? Simon's the only one besides Jesus who knows he's got the question. Jesus uses a parable and then he uses a personal comparison to teach Simon how radically out of touch with God's grace he is. The parables in verses 41 to 43 is about the moneylender that forgives the debts. Now, the big surprise in the story is the moneylender canceling debt. Can you imagine if the bank calls you up one day and says, by the way, we just canceled your mortgage? (gasps) That's completely out of character with the moneylender. It goes completely against it. Not what you'd expect at all. What you expect is when you don't pay up, Big Luca from the Roman Legion shows up at your door and says, pay up. In Jesus' parable, the moneylender cancels not the debt of one person, but two who have no way to pay back what they owe. And the clincher of the story is that one of the debtors owns ten times as more than the other does. It's an amazing, incredulous story in some ways. The characters are obvious. The one who lavishly outlandishly cancels the debt rightly owed him as God with our sins. Those who owe little are those, those who perceive themselves as basically having religion managed. Simon and the Pharisees. And the one who knows how absolutely insurmountable their debt is, is the lady who's aware of her, notice, many sins. Jesus is not afraid to make a nice gathering awkward so that he can seek a soul. And so he puts the question to Simon. And Simon gets it right formally, but not functionally. He's got the answer, but he doesn't have the actions. He can say the creed, but he doesn't have the conduct. Notice that Jesus makes that point by personal comparison. The lady did three things Simon didn't do. Washed his feet, which was a customary sign of of courtesy, kissed him, 
a customary sign of respect and friendship, and anointed him, an extraordinary sign of courtesy. You see, while Simon had the answer, he didn't have the actions that said, I know who this Christ is, and he's got a hold of my heart. Because he was completely desensitized to how much he needed to be forgiven. I did not grow up in a Christian home. The Lord saved me when I was in my early teens. And there are lots of upsides to being surrounded by the right religion your whole life that I wish I had had. One of the devastating downsides can be that you become inoculated to your desperate need for forgiveness from Jesus. We can think that because we can parrot the answers, we can give you the dictionary definitions, and we can conform to the code out of habit, that there's very little that we need Jesus to do for us. We go to a Christian church, we might go to a Christian school, we serve in Christian causes, and we think all of that qualifies us to sit at the table with Jesus because we're all in our places with bright, shiny faces Sunday morning and sometimes on Sunday night. But we need to come to terms with the fact that before the holiness of God, all of that does absolutely nothing to qualify us for right relationship with God. And if we don't come to terms with that, What we actually do is start to degenerate into judging Jesus by our standard of what we think is actually righteous. If he knew, he would not even let her touch him. A key indicator of whether we genuinely grasp how much we need the grace of God in Jesus is how we respond to other sinners that he shows grace to. How do we respond when that person who's taken the unborn life shows up at church? What about those whose name has been in the newspaper for the shady business dealings? Or the person who up till now has been actively committed to their same-sex lifestyle? When that person, when those people start to turn to Jesus, we are, if we are Simon-like, it can be an indication that we have lost the grip on how much we actually need forgiveness from Jesus. Another evidence that we are sort of religiously inoculated from our own need is our mere formality in the presence of Jesus. Carefully here I said mere, not just formality. Mere formality in the presence of Jesus. When we are content merely to follow the form, but we're not giving Him our hearts, we're not enthusiastically, actively welcoming Him in all that He is and all that He's done. When we're correct, but we're casual in our commitment to Jesus, it's a sign that somewhere we're out of touch with the grace of God in our life. Can I make this appeal particularly to the young people in our midst. If you know what it is to be forgiven by Jesus, you will not settle for an all-in-our-places with bright, shiny faces religion the rest of your life. Getting a grip on the grace of God in Christ and how amazing it is means that we will, we will be all in and all out for Christ and that our lives will be utterly committed to Him. Jesus tells us that's the point He wants Simon's heart to get. Look at verse 47. This is the point He wants him to get. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves 
little. So, what if we see ourselves as Simon or Simon-like in the portrait? Withdrawn, withholding our affections and actions from loving Christ. There's really good news. Jesus doesn't write off the Pharisees anymore, and He writes off notorious sinners. Whichever one we are, whether we are the notorious sinner or whether we are the self-righteous Pharisee, listen, here's the good news. Christ has authority to forgive your and my sins. That's the question buzzing around the table. Look at verses 48 to 50. And He said to her, remarkable, your sins are forgiven. Their question, those who were at the table with Him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The church in which I was converted and which discipled me in my early Christian life held to an unbiblical and unhealthy view that you could lose your salvation once God had given it to you. As a result, I spent my early Christian years feeling and believing that my struggles and my stumbles with sin put me outside of God's mercy and love until I started to read Jesus' words for myself. And I saw that it wasn't, it wasn't my work that earned my, earned my forgiveness. It was Christ's work. Christ's work alone, applied to me by God's grace alone, received through faith He'd given me alone. See, Jesus, I want you to hear this this morning. Jesus is not like the religion I grew up in. Jesus loves to assure His people of forgiveness. That's why your pastor every Lord's Day reads to you an assurance of pardon so you can hear Jesus Sunday after Sunday say, if you believe in me, if you're joined to me, you are forgiven. Notice what He does with this woman. He says to her, your your sins are forgiven. Not because she poured out her heart. Not because of her actions of love. But because she simply believed. Notice what he says, your your faith has saved you. Our affections for Jesus don't save us. Our actions for Jesus don't save us. God gives us peace with Him simply through faith in Christ alone. So let me say this to you this morning and plead with you on this. Whether you're like the anonymous woman or self-righteous Simon, Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth to forgive your sins. Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to forgive the sins of every person who will ever believe in Him. You can trust Jesus to forgive your sins. Sometimes we're stilted and stifled in our affections for Jesus because we just don't believe that. We're listening to the voice of everyone else around us. Maybe it's the culture. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's religious types. And their voices remind us of how messed up we are and we just never measure up to the standard. Sometimes it's because we don't actually believe that our sins are that many. I find a, this amazing other awkward moment in the conversation 
Jesus, again, he's never afraid to make a nice meeting awkward to seek a soul. Look at what he says in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many. Jesus does not minimize sin to maximize mercy. We are living in a time and in a culture where it says you cannot call sin, sin if you want to win people to Jesus. That's a false gospel. You remember the woman at the well? Sir, give me this living water. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five, and the one that you're now living with is not your husband. And then Jesus wins her to mercy. Jesus does not minimize sin to maximize mercy. John Newton got it right when he penned the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved, saved a misguided person like myself. No. Saved a wretch like me. And we've been told that that's psychologically unhealthy. Listen, the most psychologically cruel thing you can do for somebody is tell them that they are fine before a holy God when their whole trajectory is on the way to hell. The most merciful, loving thing you can do for somebody is say, sin is really sin. And Jesus really died for sin. And there's not one sin in your life that if you believe in Jesus, He won't cover. So, whichever problem it is that's stifling our love for Jesus, the solution is to believe the answer to the question that was buzzing around the table. Who is this? Who can forgive sins? Here's the answer. The Son of God. The Son of God who on the cross became a notorious sinner. Not for His sin, for our sin. The Son of God who was raised, God declared righteous when He raised Him from the dead. The Son of God who now sits at the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and earth. The Son of God who looks at His people who will simply believe in Him and say, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If we grasp the amazing grace of God in Jesus, it will overflow in a life of active, authentic love for Jesus and other sinners. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for loving your people from before the foundation of the world. We thank You that in Your love You sent Your Son into the world that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And You promise us that whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Lord Jesus, we praise You for coming to be our sinless Savior who became the substitute sacrifice and who is now the risen Lord. And then we praise You for pouring out the Holy Spirit to shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that if there is one today who does not know Your love, that You would place Your love upon them and win them to Jesus Christ. And, Lord, for those who do know Your love, And perhaps our, our grip and our grasp has been lightened on it. Would you please show us Christ once again? Cause us to turn from our self righteousness, maybe even our self condemnation, 
And would you cause us to trust and love Jesus even more? It's in Jesus' name that we pray and God's people said.